Hello, everyone. In the United Kingdom, we Brits have heard a lot about working practices in the Prime Minister's office, 10 Downing Street, over the last couple of years. But right now, we're just weeks away from a new leader taking charge of the office and the country. What should the new Prime Minister do to leave past missteps behind and establish a modern, fit-for-purpose workplace? Let's find out. Welcome to the Changing the World of Work podcast, where we provide insightful, practical content to untangle and demystify workplace change. I'm Karen Plum, Director at Advanced Workplace Associates, where we combine science with nearly 30 years experience helping organizations change the way they work for the better. We shape our buildings and thereafter they shape us. So said Winston Churchill in 1943, when arguing for the bombed-out House of Commons to be rebuilt exactly as before. The rectangular layout of the Commons debating chamber reinforces the adversarial nature of the two-party system in this country and is unlike the semicircular or horseshoe designs favoured by other countries for their assemblies. The statement also resonates with what we see of 10 Downing Street. A few weeks ago, AWA founder and managing director Andrew Mawson was quoted in the UK press talking about the need for the next UK Prime Minister to move out of 10 Downing Street into a modern, efficient office, rather than continuing to operate in a building that's not fit for purpose, leading to muddled decision-making, poor information flows, and a lack of cohesion within the teams working there. I wanted to find out more about Andrew's thinking, and also to see what he and our colleague AWA Senior Associate Lisa Whited thought would be a good way to go about such a redesign. So I'm delighted to welcome them both to the podcast. Great to see you both. Hi, Karen. Hey, Karen. Thanks for having us. So you've made a very bold assertion there, Andrew. Clearly, 10 Downing Street is steeped in history, and it would take a very bold prime minister to move away from it. Can you expand a bit on your thinking about what makes an office like this dysfunctional? Yeah, well, it's interesting, Karen. Obviously, we've all been watching the ins and outs of the UK Parliament over the last couple of years and encouraged me to take a look at the building itself, you know, and it's all sort of little nooks and crannies. And during the pandemic, particularly, when we're seeing people arriving and leaving 10 Downing Street and we're seeing the ministers having to wrestle with technology, which clearly they weren't very comfortable with. The people coming and going from 10 Downing Street with papers under their arm, no laptops, no. It makes you wonder, actually, how effective and how modern the workings of the, of the government, the inner circle of the government actually is. And I, and I was reminded, again, looking at 10 Downing Street, reminded me of a project we did with a client quite a number of years ago. It was a big global not-for-profit organisation. They had a beautiful head office d- down in the west of England in country grounds. But the chief exec basically asked us to do a review and, and tell him whether or not the building was fit for the organisation as he wanted it to be, a modern thrusting organisation that was actually well connected and where people got on and made things happen pretty quickly. And we found very quickly that even though it wasn't a huge organisation, probably less than 100, there were little groups and cliques in all sorts of places who just weren't getting on together and there was little battles going on and things weren't happening quickly. And the place actually, you know, going back to your Winston Churchill and quote, the, the place did not reflect what the organisation was really about and wanting to present itself as being about. And, uh, and when I looked at 10 Downing Street, 
I realized it was pretty much the same and sort of thought about it. Well, would any major corporation designing a building today for effective working even think about going into that kind of environment where you really want people to be connecting? You don't want people hiding away, having their own private little conversations in corners. You know, you want things out in the open, you want transparency, you want openness, and you want to be able to move quickly. And it occurred to me that really, 10 Downing Street, although, of course, has huge historical significance, it just doesn't seem to me to do the job. So that's what started me off with the article, really. And um, and that, I think, is what the press have picked upon. Yeah. And I guess if we look to the US, Lisa, you're in the US, and I guess many of, of us and our listeners will have watched The West Wing on television, where people endlessly walk the corridors having conversations and work in small offices with just a few colleagues inside the offices. Do you think The West Wing suffers from the same sorts of problems as 10 Downing Street? I'm sure there are similar challenges with the design being so so many silos. And it's interesting. I think you think about those shows and some of the most interesting conversations are the ones that might be happening in the hallways as colleagues do have a chance to connect and talk and walk. Um, So I'm sure there are similar challenges, although I do think it's interesting that I believe in both 10 Downing and the White House that the shopkeeper lives above the shop, right? And that's where the living quarters of the the CEO, if you will. I find that quite interesting because I also think about what we're trying to do with today's environments, live, work, play, and and make things more integrated and connected. So I think there may be pieces that could be quite interesting to push further um, and others that definitely could welcome a challenge. I'm interested to loop back to what you were saying, Andrew, about the organization that you worked with and where we see these little cliques and little silos. When you think about what makes that group of people productive, is that what makes them productive in what they're doing? Or are they just becoming very siloed, very separate, and that they're not actually communicating well with other teams? Well, I mean, you know, we we know from the research we've done over the years that the number of factors that have a bearing upon the effectiveness of an organisation, knowledge-based organisation, and they include things like social cohesion, which kind of requires a little bit of openness and connectivity and people getting on, trust, which is not something which is synonymous with most political situations, vision and goal clarity, what are we trying to achieve, getting to one kind of common view. So there are a number of things that we know need to be achieved if you're going to operate in an effective way. And it seems to me that the physical environment in which you do things does play a part either in impeding or signalling different modes of operation. And that's where I think this whole thing is going. You know, you go back to your point about living over the shop. In the days when 10 Downing Street was originally created there wasn't any alternative but to live over the shop if you wanted to be kind of connected to what was going on and be able to respond and and whatever now there's loads of opportunities to do that but without that sort of physical proximity i don't think buildings change behavior but they certainly can get in the way of good behavior Yes. And I guess if people are sitting in small offices with small numbers of people, they become the little silo, the little tribe, and maybe at odds with other people trying to do other things. But then again, being part of a tribe is also important to us 
as humans, right? I mean, we know from David Rock's um, scarf model, that sense of relatedness is important to our sense of well-being. We want to feel that we belong. So where's the trade-off here? Is it just that we take any strength and it becomes a weakness because we've gone too far with that sense of feeling that I belong to a, a particular tribe, but I don't belong to the bigger tribe? I think that's the point. What you want is people to feel that they're all connected to the, the big tribe. I mean, this is not a huge organization in the end. As far as I understand, it's a few hundred people. You want people to be connected to the big tribe. I mean, clearly, there are little tribes as well, but they all need to be kind of interconnected. And I think the danger that you have when people are sort of cocooned in, in different physical places, the strength of those tribes becomes substantial, and they start to... Uh, play their own tune. They'd start to drive for the objectives and the and the things that they themselves want, as opposed to necessarily thinking about the bigger story. I mean, in the end, we want these people to lead our country in a way that makes sense, um, that is fair, as seen by most of us around the uh, the UK, and puts bread on the table and and keeps everybody safe and happy. That seems to me to be the job. And uh, at the moment, it seems to me like that isn't really the job. No, but um, I guess if we look at the subject more broadly and move away from these um, seats of governmental power, other organisations like the one that you spoke about earlier, they obviously found themselves with a working culture that wasn't serving them well, and that wasn't helped by the building yeah. that they were operating within. I'm interested in your thoughts, Lisa, about the move to much more remote working practices now. So if we think about the buildings shaping us, are our homes going to start shaping us more than our offices, I wonder? How are working relationships being influenced now when people are together much less often? I think there's a tremendous opportunity for people to take a good look at how they're working and making sure they've got physical space that supports them, how they're working, wherever they're working. And so I definitely am a fan of a home office or home working arrangement audit to really think carefully about what supports me to do my best work. Am I left-handed? Am I right-handed? Where should different components be? What's around me? What do I see? Do I have access to natural light? We often, and it's so true in the office that we've all are well aware of, as well as our homes, we pretty much just make do. I compare it to if you live with other people in your living abode, um, if you're one who puts something on the stairs with the expectation that somebody else is going to pick it up and bring it upstairs you're often very disappointed. And what I, I joke about the thing on the stairs is that we, after a while, we don't see it anymore. It's there. It becomes just part of how we are. And I think it's the same with how we work. We just sort of work a certain way because this is the way it's always been arranged. We don't pause to say, what could we do better? And this is what the pandemic has given people in large offices or any type of shared office is to really rethink what is it that would best support our people instead of doing things the way they've always been done. Instead of leaving that equipment right there, it's all, well, we've always done it that way. It seems to work. Well, you know, this is why people have enjoyed working remotely, because they were able to have a bit of control and, and set things up for themselves. Um, and yet again, I think people would go further. And, and I would encourage listeners who are working at home now really pause and say, what, how am I best served by how I'm working and interacting? So that's the physical part. 
But our relationships also need good work, don't they? How we interact with our colleagues, how we decide to engage. Instead of having that regular weekly recurring meeting, let's take a pause and say, what serves us? Let's have a conversation. What are we trying to achieve with this? So I think that it's the opportunity to question all sorts of how things have been to reimagine what could be better. And I think, again, as with so many projects that we've seen all over the years, when there's an opportunity to change the physical space, that's often the thing that prompts the discussion about how we work and the behavior. And that's what moved a lot of people out of small offices within the building into a a more open plan space where they could interact more, could see, could hear, you know, all of those sorts of things the move to more remote styles of working. As you were saying, I think it you have to think about it. You have to think about it a lot more than perhaps people thought they were going to. They were just going to go work from home and that was it. Whereas I think we have to really plan for the sorts of interactions that we need and the relationships that we're trying to build. And I would add to that, Karen, that when organizations went to more open planning, they missed it. They are so many, not all, but they missed recognizing that people still need places for focused heads down work. They didn't give them focus rooms. And it is so interesting. You know, maybe they gave them some phone booths for private, private phone calls, but the opportunity is focus rooms that are designed for somebody to go in and be highly effective with heads down work. And when you do that and give a high enough proportion of those usable by anybody, regardless of title, then you're giving people what they were missing, the top complaints in the office before the pandemic. It's too noisy, I'm distracted, and I'm too hot or too cold. Those were often the biggest complaints. Noise and distractions were really bothersome. So again, working from home, many, but not all, but many found that quiet and distraction-free space that they needed. And our brains, you know, research shows us we absolutely need to have that opportunity to focus. And, and we're lacking it often due to this technology that's dinging and buzzing and, and as well as colleagues interrupting us. I completely agree. I think what um, the pandemic has done is to raise the level of awareness that we have of these things. And you know, other things as well, wellness and so on, I think have become much more of a focus. And I think we've we've become more sensitized to them as well. I mean, even traveling into London, uh, for instance, you know, I live, what, 25 miles out of London. And uh, traveling into London now for a meeting is a chore. I mean, it, <laughs> you, know, you know, you sort of think, well, did I actually need to go through all that to to have that meeting? And you think, well... Probably not, really. It was marginal as to where. So, th- so there is an interesting question, really, as to um, to how many times of the things that you do, you really do need absolute face to face in the same space communication and connection, really. And I think there's the pandemic has just woken everybody up to. I think some of the things that we were always practicing, you know, over the last ten years, really. But yeah, I mean, the great thing about hybrid working, of course, it gives you the best of both worlds if you get it right. I mean, you can have the environment to focus, which you can tune, as Lisa says, to your own needs. and But you can also choose to be with other people and work on maybe things that are really tough. And uh, maybe you want to build some relationships or deal with some sensitive issues or whatever it is. But you can choose the right moment to do that. You don't, you don't have to be doing it 
it all the time. And in some degree, you know, in the middle of all this sits the thing called the metaverse, which I think everybody's currently struggling to see how it kind of works. But I can see how the metaverse could become, we could see a metaverse office in the middle of all this that sort of bridges between the physical and the virtual as well. So it's an interesting, uh, fascinating time, I think. So just to bring us back to where we started the episode, thinking about the Prime Minister's office at uh, 10 Downing Street or the West Wing, Andrew, if you were going to redesign that work experience, you've suggested that they move out of there to somewhere modern and effective, etc. But how would you go about redesigning Mm. that? Well, I think um, the first thing that we always do is start with a blank sheet of paper and say, well, what actually we're trying to achieve here. You know, I think the first step is to work with some of the senior politicians and um, civil servants to establish what is the purpose. What purpose do we want to achieve through the um, through the way we put the whole thing together? It's a typical vision workshop or something, which is which is not about design predominantly. It's more about trying to get on the table. You know, the business needs of the organisation. I think then you move on. I think to look at actually how people do work today and the tasks and the, the activities that they're involved in, both individually and collectively. And then you, I think, have to decide which proportion of those things you're going to accommodate within a physical environment. And then you can, I think, from that base, you can look at the technology and the space and the policies. And all, but from that base, I think you then can construct kind of a start point in terms of the brief. And then you can start translating that into the, into the physical and the behavioural. But taking a pretty forensic approach to the whole process, I think that's the essence of it. And then, of course, involve you know those with a very strong design flair to turn it into something that uh, that's very attractive and, and tunes into the the image and the, the sense that um, we're trying to create. We are increasingly a modern economy. Look, King's Cross is going to turn out to be one of the top technology hubs in the world. More of this is what we as a country need to be. And I think the the way we operate, uh, the government should reflect that leading position. I wonder whether you think the fact that this is um, an organisation, a seat of power, it's the office of the prime minister. It's not a, I was going to say, it's not a political organisation, but it's all about politics. So to what degree do you think that the focus of politics in 10 Downing Street contributes to the situation that they're in? Does it make a difference? Does it mean that the normal things that you would ask yourself and look at when redesigning work for an organisation, does it make a difference? For me, it does make a difference. But we as taxpayers fund all of this to achieve our needs. And therefore, it should have a, it has a business purpose, really. And it should be designed that way, I think, from the ground up. There's a read across into Parliament. What is Parliament supposed to do? Parliament is supposed to sort of bring together the views of a variety of different houses to preside over issues of the day. And one would hope that we get a good quality of discussion and debate, which would ultimately arrive at decisions and policies that made better sense than they would if they hadn't been debated. Whereas my strong suspicion is that enormous amount of what goes on in Parliament is one side putting their views on the table, haranguing the other side, 
and the other side putting their views on the table, and nothing much changes. It's quite interesting, actually, when you think about it. When we had the financial challenges a few years ago, of course, we ended up with a coalition government in the UK with the Lib Dems and the Conservatives, and it seemed to me that that actually worked quite well. There was enough power in the room for both parties to be able to moderate the extreme position of each other, and as a consequence, had to talk. And I think David Cameron provided an environment in which there was more discussion, there was more debate, and things kind of, you know, there were sharp edges, but there was stuff that got talked about, and it moved on. Whereas I think what we now have, because one party is dominating the other, we have this situation where we're not actually listening to each other, we're not working to try to achieve some common goal we just want power and we want to dominate i think we'd be a lot better served if we created environments and we created conditions under which there was more debate and discussion and more listening so that we arrived at better solutions and better policies and that really resonates with the podcast you shared with me lisa the one where adam grant was talking about politicians he said that they don't even bother to listen to each other unless they already agree with each other. He says that if we can disagree productively, we sharpen our our own reasoning and we become better, but obviously only if we're listening. Just having conversations and arguing to win instead of arguing to learn. Interestingly enough, it's very parallel to what we recommend with, with our clients, that they need to spend time listening to their employees, just listening and getting their input and then thinking and then acting And so many times it feels like in our governments, there's that listening piece has been missed. There's just been conversation and action, and we don't feel like we were heard. So, Lisa, if you were redesigning the work experience in uh, 10 Downing Street or the West Wing, how would you go about it? Well, I I 100% agree with Andrew, always starting with purpose. What are we trying to achieve and really getting clear on that and ensuring, though, that in answering that question, that everybody is invited into that conversation. Everybody in this case being those that work there and that are trying to do their best work. So having conversations with intention and inclusion and clarifying purpose would be a really important first step. And then I think it would be really well worth doing focus groups with the public across section, Andrew being one of them, of many, <laughs> and um, and diversity, ensuring that, that there's a real going out into the community and listening to what others have to say about uh, what is the purpose, what are we trying to achieve? So truly making it an inclusive and democratic approach to planning and design, which is core to AWA's belief as well in that inclusivity. So that's where I would begin. Um, Certainly, it all starts with conversations. And honestly, those conversations might be better had outside of 10 Downing because that's already been proven not the best uh, arrangement for that type of conversation. However, I bet we could find a nice room within 10 Downing and take all the furniture out and just put chairs in a circle and have some focus group conversations that way, as well as using our technology uh, to have some virtual conversations. Lisa, I think you've done some of this stuff before. I I think you were telling me recently about a project that you worked on for your local city hall. Yeah, super fun project. It was called uh, the Civic Design Fest. And anybody in the community was invited to put together an idea that they would want to have as a sort of a charrette, a day-long brainstorming session that was held on, I think it was September 23rd, 2017. And the idea that I submitted at the time, I think 
I was on the planning board and we at that time, or I had spent a lot of time in the um, city hall council where we hold those city council meetings and planning board meetings. And that building, although gorgeous, the chamber itself is so hard to access. Um, There's stairs on the outside. Now, definitely there's ADA and there's a ramp and there's elevators and all that, but it's not really clearly inclusive and approachable as a building. And when I would go to the council chambers, all I saw was lots of people with white hair and white skin. And Portland, Maine happens to be one of the most diverse cities within, yes, a very rural and old and white state, but Portland's um, community speaks more than 66 different languages. So my idea with the Civic Design Fest was how can we create this gathering spot with really important conversations taking place and that are going to impact everybody in the community to make it more inclusive and make people feel like it's more approachable. So it was really fun. And even thinking through the architecture. So thinking through how we would do this with purposeful conversations and then thinking of the chamber itself that has levels, of course, of hierarchy. And even if you were the mayor or the chair of the planning board, If you had a disability, it would make it really hard to get up onto that dais to be able to uh, present. So so there are a lot of things that could be done differently. We looked at the access into the space and how that is designed. We looked at the chairs themselves and the layout of the room. It was very fun. No, they didn't rebuild City Hall (laughs) because of our work, (laughs) but uh, it was a great exercise of thinking differently sharing other ways to reconsider a space that's used constantly. Thinking differently, it's just so important, isn't it? And I know you've been doing some of that, Andrew, and that you've written to the two candidates that are vying for uh, becoming the next prime minister in the UK, inviting them to consider how to make 10 Downing Street and indeed Parliament more effective. It seemed to me this was a particularly pertinent moment to uh, to make these views known to the incoming leader of the Conservative Party, who ultimately ends up Prime Minister. Um, the first was about Downing Street and, and rethinking the way in which Downing Street is used, probably using it for ceremonial purposes rather than day-to-day business operations and redesigning uh, a more modern workplace not too far away with activity-based working at its heart, really, and thinking through all, all the different things we've talked about today. The second, really, was about you know using technology to enable MPs to spend more time in their constituencies, working with their, you know members of their local communities in order to, to bring their weight to bear uh, there, but whilst at the same time being able to participate in debates and so on using technology in the way that we did during the, the pandemic, it seems to me, rather than uh, every MP having a second home near London and all the expense that goes with that and the, the trauma that uh, leaving families, particularly young families and stuff, alone and spending lots of time in London. So that was the second. The third was really about Parliament itself. Those close to the subject will know that there are some incredible numbers being bandied around for the the overhaul of Parliament to turn it into something close to a modern environment. And those, you know, those estimates range from anything up to 13 billion up to 22. And for me, as a as a taxpayer, I think that's obscene. And, you know, we could do a lot better with that money than putting it into an old building that doesn't really reflect the modern UK that we're sort of heading towards. So my suggestion was 
start again um, and do something around the levelling up agenda in Birmingham or Manchester or somewhere that, that is not Westminster, and we redistribute some of the wealth around the country and the power as well. So, you know, it was, it was a you know an attempt to bring a few ideas to the, the incoming Premier. So we shall see whether that, uh, that lands. I'm guessing you haven't heard from either of them yet. Not as yet, no. <laughs> oh, well, we'll wait to see. And, uh, and if you do get a response or if we get to hear of uh, either of them being influenced by your thoughts, obviously, we'll uh, invite you back onto the podcast and you can tell us how it's moving forward. I'd be delighted to do that, Karen. Other than that, you may be in the tower, yeah? <laughs> it could easily be, yeah. Okay. Well, really good to hear your thoughts, both of you. Thank you very much for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks, Karen. Thanks, Karen. And that's it for this episode. As Lisa and Andrew mentioned, the approach they would take with 10 Downing Street or the West Wing is just the one that they would use with clients. If you'd like to know more, please do get in touch. Our contact details are in our show notes. And if you're interested in learning to disagree better, I recommend The Economist's podcast, which we referred to. Again, there's a link in our show notes. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Changing the World of Work podcast. Please follow or like the show so you don't miss any of our content. You can find more information on this episode in our show notes, including a link to the AWA website if you'd like to know more about us. Hope to see you next time. Goodbye.